Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the independent politics and media podcast, uh, another midweek issues podcast for you all. I'm joined by Michael Wolf, a copyright policy advisor at Toto. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you. It's great to be here. Really appreciate you coming along because, uh, as as our audience will be aware, we try and do these uh, what we call, I guess, deeper dives and in, in corporate speak into specific issues that we don't often get time to talk about in depth. And yeah, really appreciate you taking the time to actually sit down and and take us through uh, the issues coming out of the recent New Zealand and UK free trade agreement around copyright. Because I think it's kind of gone under the radar. I think I've seen one article that was by you. <laughs> oh, that, that's too bad. I've I been doing my best to raise the profile, profile of the issue. And I think historically, at least for certain internet-oriented folks, copyright issues and copyright policy has actually quite recently had a pretty broad profile, largely because for the, the relatively, well, in one sense niche, in one sense earth-swallowing reason, that co- the way that copyright regulates behavior online is it regulates behavior entirely because online life interacts with or deals with copyrighted works, more or less everything we're doing, the podcast we're making now, the things that might be incorporated into it, all of them are on some level copyrighted. So how copyright rules are made, enforced, and 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 used can shape what online life looks like. So there was an intense period at the, in the early 2000s where lots of people were engaged in how does copyright shape life online and uh, and let's make a copyright or a series of copyright rules that don't stifle creative expression moving into a digital world. So that that moment has passed us, <laughs> and I, and I and I think it's safe to say that in 2022, copyright is back to where it was in say 1965, which is relatively niche and not necessarily terribly understood. Even if people like me find it extremely important, exciting, interesting. And so anytime I have an opportunity to persuade people that it's all of those things and that it's worth caring about uh, is is a great day for me. I'm, I'm very excited to be here. So let, I guess let's let's start there. Um, we had a bit of a different approach in New Zealand to copyright than the UK or than, you know, some of the big, would you call the US a big copyright country? I, I don't know. Is that is that terminology we use? Uh, sure. I, I mean, probably in some ways the biggest there. Their economy has the the largest copyright economy in the world, and some of you know to put it bluntly, the biggest copyright bullies in the world. So the UK and especially the United States Trade Representative uh, has a, a very strong vested interest in essentially exporting strong copyright laws uh, to other countries. They're a net exporter of copyrighted works. So the bigger, stronger, longer copyright is overseas, the more net inflows of capital there are to the US. So that's really pretty crass, straightforward. Uh, summary of, of the United States interest on the matter. And, and even, even where I think the discussion, having been a, a, mem- a, a part of U.S. policy discussions on copyright, the internal, the domestic policy copyright uh, engagement in the U.S. is much more nuanced, much more complex and reasonable than anything that the country does externally, and particularly through the Office of, office of the Trade Representative, where the line is hard, it's industrial-oriented, and it's blind really to cultural issues, which is a shock given that copyright is how we regulate the cultural economy. <laughs> so take us take us back through a, a couple of those. So 
where has New Zealand been um, in terms of copyright law, I, I guess, is a, is a good starting place. Yeah, so uh, the reason that I, and you said that there's been a bit, bit of a di- divergence between New Zealand and the UK and, you know, New Zealand and the EU, New Zealand and the United States, and that's, uh, and the thing that we're really talking about here is copyright term. Uh, so to some extent, copyright laws globally, and also because of trade agreements, the same things that we're talking about today, uh, because of trade agreements, copyright laws domestically around the world largely do look pretty similar. Uh, so the World Trade Organization decided that uh, intellectual property was an important component of how uh, essentially minimum standards for a functioning trade ecosystem. So any member of the World Trade uh, Organization has to be a signatory to the TRIPS agreement, which is the trade-related aspects of intellectual property. And that agreement says, hey, every country in the world, you have to have certain what they call minimum standards for intellectual property, and you have to treat other signatories the same as you treat your own people. So these these standards mean that basically every country is a member of the WTO has to have a copyright law to begin with. And that copyright law has to provide um, protections for certain kinds of works. Those protections have to last for a certain uh, length of time. And while those minimum standards have been in place for reasonably long time now, what's happened on top of them is what we call these TRIPS plus arrangements, where individual countries decide, well, it's it's great that there's the World Trade Organization set these thresholds, which which are very, to, to, to be clear, the World Trade Organization thresholds are very strong intellectual property thresholds that don't benefit many signatories. And in fact, many signatories are aware of the fact that they don't benefit and there were carve-outs negotiated for, for many countries that were not in a position to, uh, <laughs> to, to do anything but send cash to uh, the Northern economies as part of that initial negotiation. But so these TRIPS plus arrangements are, essentially saying we want protection over more things for things that weren't that we hadn't even thought of when trips was signed uh and and also and this is what we're really talking about here today and i I should just get into it is longer terms so you can calculate a copyright term any which way you like from the face of it the idea behind copyright is you give the owner uh who's not necessarily the author but frequently originally the author of a creative work certain rights to that work to control how it's exploited and in some ways, this is, you know, most people will see this as being relatively benign. We, we have expectations that, oh, uh, you've made something original. It's really, it's really yours. Uh, you should be able to say when it's been released to the world or if it makes money, you should be able to control the money that it makes. It is a, that's a moral instinct that, that lots of people share. And, and there's also some relatively sound economic reasons to think that it, could be to some extent good policy for encouraging people to make new good creative stuff. Now, when copyright was first introduced in, uh, so originally this is like an 18th century law that was really tied into censorship in early modern Britain. So its um, it, its origins are, well, it, they're for another day. They're really interesting, uh, but not necessarily squeaky clean. But at that time, uh, there was a, a control over publishing in the UK, or well, I guess like the newly born UK, was vested in an organization called the Stationers Company uh, and overseen by the Crown. And those rights were perpetual. They were monopolies that were designed to sort of enrich the friends of the Crown and also squash dissenting opinion. That, in the turmoil of the 17th century, fell apart. uh, And we were given, uh, and the Stationers were given limited terms over the rights of authors. So 14 years, renewable for another 14 years. So a, a total of 28 years of copyright protection. So that was a way of saying, hey, 
we think it's important maybe that uh, that publishers are able to control rights uh, in order to make a profit, but we don't think they should be perpetual anymore. Uh, and uh, they're gonna be time limited. Over time, those terms grew. Uh, they grew in the UK, they grew in the US, uh, uh, they grew in New Zealand. And eventually uh, they came into some conflict with the European tradition of extending terms that were similar that were based off the life of the author. And those life of the author terms very quickly went to life of the author plus 50 years. So a very long term of protection, 14 years to the a human life plus an additional 50. And that's where we set the international standard under the TRIPS agreement. Life of the author, 50 years, an extremely long time. And we're talking about things that are, you know, copyright touches everything from computer code to Hollywood movies. But we're talking about all of those things, music, print media, whatever whatever you can imagine that is creative and is what they call the word but fixed. Life um, of the author. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, like life of the author yeah. in particular, mm -hmm. they, they aren't often the right hold, rights holder, right? Exactly, yes. So <laughs> okay. the term is measured by the life of the author in part because of this profound moral intuition that what you make should be yours to control. But uh, keep in mind, these, these laws were largely written for the benefit of publishers mm -hmm. and for other industrial intermediaries who are not themselves owners and who can easily stand to benefit for longer terms. And it's very easy to sign away a copyright interest. All it takes is you know, essentially a valid contract and it's gone. So yes, uh, <laughs> by definition, the author doesn't benefit from in real time uh, from a term that extends past their death because they're dead. Uh, but in, in truth, an author, especially for a successful work, a work that's actually commercially meaningful in a century's time, for those kinds of works, almost always they would have been signed away to a third-party industrial corporation early in their lifespan. So that brings us into the 20th century. And we... But get... Finally, we're, we're making... <laughs> <laughs> and, we, and we get into the World um, Trade Organization stuff, and it's just kind of... Everyone's kind of doing it in one way or another. Um, and where does New Zealand diverge? Well, so it's pretty clear to see how if you are Disney or Sony BMG or anybody who has a very large catalog of works, uh, for those works, some percentage, not even a very meaningful percentage, if you think about the media amount of media you consume is 100 years old, but some meaningful percentage of their catalogs will still be productive at the end of copyright. So the life of the author plus 70, or however the term is measured, or let's think of the life of the author plus 50, after that end of that burn minimum term, at that point, there's still money to be made. And if those rents are controlled by a monopolist, the copyright is a monopoly, then uh, then that's good business. There's no reason you wouldn't want to extend them. So in the countries that are in the sort of the heart of the global copyright system, um, in the United States, uh, in the UK, those, those are, uh, um, and in the EU, the arguments were made very early on that, oh, we should extend these terms. We should make it life of the author plus something else. And the sort of new global standard spearheaded by the EU and the US uh, is life of the author plus 70. It's not the longest term in the world. There are places that have life of the author plus 99. And I'm sure we'll get there everywhere else too. Um, but it was while the decision to extend terms in those countries was always contentious um, and, uh, and the policy behind it, and we'll get into this probably a little bit later, the policy behind it was always known to be bad, bad domestic policy. It doesn't provide anything but rents <laughs> to a very select 
and small group of corporate entities. It's not doing any much in, or really anything that's broadly socially beneficial. That discussion doesn't work the same way in other countries. And in, in New Zealand and in Australia and in Canada, the when this was being push, pushed by the US trade representative and others, and it was considered as part of internal copyright reviews in all of those countries, every time it was considered as a matter of serious policy, the determination was made that it is straightforwardly, um, undeniably, and just unequivocally stupid, stupid fucking policy. It doesn't make it doesn't make a single lick of sense. Um, you can't justify it on the grounds that it's going to make more cool, creative stuff. It doesn't. If you're an importer of uh, of cultural goods, you can't argue that it's going to add to your wealth. It won't. All it will do is increase prices for cultural work and decrease access to cultural works and creative. And sorry, I, I'm saying cultural works, but it's also knowledge works. So this is uh, these are books of of any sort. This is academic publishing. This is the you know crown copyright is, is measured differently, um, but conceivably for in, in depending on your jurisdiction, if you're talking about works that are created by the state, it can be works that are created by the state. And so while in Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, uh, the determination was made that this is stupid and that it shouldn't be done. Nevertheless, one by one, in trade agreements, uh, it was given up. And it was given up in exchange for market access for dairy or beef or, or whatever the important reward was on the other side. Uh, and not because it was thought to be good, not, not even good for the economy of the US uh, or, or the UK or, or any trading partner, um, but because it was something that could be seeded in the context of a negotiation. And I guess that's exactly where we are right now. So New Zealand and the UK have embarked on what they're calling an historic um, free trade agreement. People would have seen the news of, of Ardern uh, over in the UK have, having talks about it um, and trying to get uh, removal of tariffs for a range of different agricultural goods. You, you mentioned uh, dairy and beef previously. Uh, they were definitely in there uh, alongside some other things. And alongside that, we're finally seeing New Zealand giving up um, some of these uh, copyrights as well. And so, and to put this into context, a review, a comprehensive review of the Copyright Act in New Zealand was initiated in 2018. Uh, and this was done because there are essentially some glaring deficiencies that set New Zealand copyright law apart from the rest of the world. It, it's not very well equipped um, in many respects to deal with, uh, without getting too deep into the weeds, to deal with the ubiquity of copyright in modern life. Uh, and when that process was initiated, this was obviously one of the things that was on the table. Um, it would had already been brought up in the context of the TPP negotiations when those were happening. So it was on the radar as a known thing that trading partners wanted. <laughs> and even though that 2018 copyright review stalled out, it was made clear from the outset that the, um, the regulators in, in at the Ministry for Business, Innovation and Employment didn't even, weren't going to put it on the table. It was known to be such uh, a bad and costly policy. And in the context of the DPP, the estimate was $55 million a year would be the cost, borne primarily not, not, by, not by the government, but by everyday New Zealanders and the cost of paying for cultural goods that are now of higher prices, that it was, it was just eliminated. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, in the, in the context of the UK a free trade agreement, it was given up, but we were told that it it was the best case scenario that we were going to have it, to give it up eventually 
because all of the major, major trading partners had made this bad decision, but we would have 15 years to implement was the trade-off that we would have this nice window of time. And 15 years is mean, it's meaningful for two reasons. One is that in my opinion, in order to ready the Copyright Act for longer terms, and, and to the, we maybe we'll have time to go into to why this is, but in order to ready the rest of the Copyright Act for longer terms, we really do need to engage in a more comprehensive re review of how the law works. And, and the major category of things here is what we call limitations and exceptions. So the times when you don't have to worry about copyright. And so the one that people might be more familiar with is fair dealing. So where, um, so fair dealing is for the purposes of, uh, of criticism and review. And those are, there's a limited class of fair dealings that are brought in New Zealand. People might be more familiar with the term in US law, which is called fair use, which you might encounter uh, in dealing with large US-based internet intermediaries like YouTube or, or Twitter. But those exceptions in New Zealand are pretty are very narrowly constrained. And when you have a very large class of works, um, that is every copyrighted work in New Zealand, uh, that is now going to be under technically unlawful to use without permission for a longer period of time, we can expect, we know that uh, any number of things will happen, including not knowing who the rights holder is. So if the law says you have to pay a rights holder to use the work and you can't locate the rights holder, what are your options? Uh, and this is, this is we call this the orphan works problem. It's known, documented, familiar, uh, and it's endemic to all sorts of everyday things that we all create that are copyrighted. You take a photograph, it's copyrighted. You make a printout, you put it on your wall. You know, uh, 150 years later, your grandchildren give it to the local museum. The local museum wants to put it on the website. Can they do it? And uh, in a world where it's still under copyright, the answer is straightforwardly no, they can't lawfully. And so the, these cultural heritage organizations have to make a determination about, do we think, even though it's unlawful, should we do it anyway? Or you know, in an ideal world, what they would have is a, a lawful, lawful recourse to make use of the thing, whether it's paid or unpaid for these non-commercial works that have uh, that, that were made without the expectation of commercial return, for which there's no identifiable, right, identifiable rights holder. I, I personally don't see any argument why it should be paid. But even if it were a paid um, exception, there needs to be some lawful recourse for that to happen. And that's just not the case in New Zealand today. So we need to do these, really rethink what the act looks like. So 15 years buys us a lot of time. And not only that, but in those 15 years, we're given a gift. And that is every year when copyrights expire, the works that the copyrights attach to fall into the public domain. They become owned collectively by everybody. And, and the public domain is something that's familiar because we encounter it all the time. These are, uh, it's Shakespeare, it's fairy tales, uh, it's it's <laughs> anything um, that was made that, that's sufficiently old enough uh, to no longer be covered by copyright. Or um, hasn't been like and, vacuumed up yet, or, right? <laughs> or, or or hasn't been vacuumed up, but it's it's really it's been hard mostly to pull stuff out of the public domain. Traditionally, although not always, traditionally it's a one way road. When copyright protection falls, it becomes owned by the public. Uh, and there are ways that the Copyright Act could better protect uh, the public's interest in the public domain. But nevertheless, it is it's real, and we can feel it, and we can see it. So right now, for you know New Zealand. So not every, and this gets into the weeds a little bit, but not every copyrighted work in New Zealand is judged by a life plus term. And this is actually another, one of the ways in which New Zealand is divergent from some other countries, but New Zealand uses a term of a fixed years for certain classes of works, including notably sound recordings, which is, uh, forgive me for the, the complexity here, 
which is different from a musical composition. So the musical composition, the thing that's written on sheet music, not quite the same for copyright purposes as the, uh, you know, the, the recorded version that you listen to at home. But the copyright in that recorded version, the copyright in, in audiovisual or in, in, in films, those things last in, presently in New Zealand for, for a term of 50 years, which means that right now the, thing, the copyrights that are expiring are in works from the 1970s or for works that are like the author plus 50 from people who died in the 1970s. So these are actually works of genuine cultural and commercial significance that are currently poised to expire, which means that every year that we're allowed, we're allowed to see works expire, the public is given a gift. And so 15 years means 15 years of new works entering the public domain. And when that, when that door slams shut, we're, we will have 20 years of silence, nothing new entering the public domain for 20 years. And that's, um, I'm, I'm from the United States and it, we extended our copyright term in 1998 and lived through a drought in which there was no new public domain works aside from those like created by the US government for 20 years. And it is, it's both a sadness, but it also creates a kind of forgetfulness. It's a way of teaching people to forget that, oh no, wait, actually, all of the, every, the works of uh, human uh, creativity and, genius or or just hard the hard slog that is doing creative work that eventually is meant to be all of ours but <laughs> i mean to be honest i i think it's part of the mission is to convince us that it's somehow better for us and for society if all of these things remain private indefinitely and uh and it is easy to forget and over a 20 year period we will that um sounds bad uh <laughs> <laughs> to, to be simplistic I, about it um well it, I, I want to, and I'll just take this opportunity to drive one important point home about why it's so bad and, and that, that this is just profoundly, stupidly, aggressively inequitable on just every possible way. So the people that we're benefiting here are the rich. It's just straightforwardly, this is taking from the, well, it's not even taking from the poor, it's taking from everybody to pay, it's a tax. It's a tax that we're paying to the very wealthiest in the creative economy. So the only works that survive for this long, uh, commercially, the, the, the things that have commercial significance after 150 years, it's the narrowest class uh, of works that are owned by the largest corporations. And over time, we've seen our film industry, our recording industry, our publishing industry become more and more concentrated. They're, they're, there's only five publishers now, and they're fighting like hell to make it. So there's four, uh, you know, on, on, at large scale, obviously, there's lots of flourishing um, economy of of smaller publishers and long may they live and not be snapped up. But those that concentration means the people who benefit from this term extension are, are fewer and fewer and they stand more and more to gain. And so they benefit and <laughs> um, at, while all of us pay. In my, in my opinion, this is it, uh, the equivalent of building a six lane highway through a pristine um, forest to service a couple of mansions, right? It's and it's, it's an insane, it, it's a tax, it costs all of us, and we're doing it to benefit the narrowest class of the wealthiest people. Uh, it's such a horrible mistake. Well, I mean, it, it sounds even, even worse than the analogy you've given, and that eventually it will just all be sixteen highways. That's, uh, that's, <laughs> the, that's the end goal, right? It's yeah. just to ensure that any cultural creative works um, are indefinitely controlled by legacy... I don't know. Is yeah, there a word that's it, big it, enough to explain what these corporations are? Because publishing just doesn't sound right anymore. No, no, it, it really doesn't. It, it's truly impressive that we, I mean, we 
perhaps maybe we're entering a, a slightly new era of uh, competition law enforcement where all of the largest uh, owners and sellers of, of creative works can't just merge together and become a single beast. But uh, it's been going on for so long that yeah, it's hard to express the scale. But and and part of this is and part of the, the effect here is twofold. On the one hand, it's a wealth transfer, right? And and I think the government, the New Zealand government, knows that it's wealth transfer. Certainly, the UK and the US governments know it's it's a wealth transfer. They wouldn't and put it in otherwise, right? They wouldn't put it in. They, they, the wouldn't, they wouldn't put it otherwise. In. <laughs> it's not just for fun. That's what it, yeah, no, that, that's what it is there to do. So th that aspect of it is well understood, and and in in fairness to the New Zealand trade negotiators, maybe there is there might be a, a time where it's worth paying that kind of price where you say, okay, fine. We don't want to cut Hollywood a check for $55 million a year, but uh, it's good enough for New Zealand that we'll suck it up and we'll do it. But it's not even just that. So it's <laughs> because copyright applies to, to everything that is within its sort of statutory ambit. So if you make it, it is copyrighted. You don't need to register a copyright. You don't need to file paperwork. It simply is protected by law. Other people, cannot use it without your permission unless a statutory exception applies, at least not legally. And so that's the framework, which means that when not only are you doing a wealth transfer, but in the process, you're walking up <laughs> all of this stuff that's not commercially significant. And uh, there's a trick that the, that the industrial rights holders like to play in these policy discussions of saying, well, if it's not commercially significant, it's not significant. And that is the most horribly depressing thought I've heard expressed about cultural work ever. And, and it not only is it demeaning to everyone who engages in any sort of cultural production, knowledge production, creative work whatsoever, um, it's also just, it's wrong, it's, it's incorrect. And we know it's incorrect because there are institute, cultural heritage institutions, researchers, individuals who want to use older works all the time. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and when the law, as, in some of the hats I've worn throughout my career, I've, I've been in the unfortunate position of telling people uh, what they cannot do because of a legal obstacle, what they cannot publish, what they cannot create because of a copyright obstacle based off of exactly this problem of terms that are too long for no discernible policy reason whatsoever. And I think one of the other things that we, you know, when we talk about copyright, we have to think books or music or film, but you've also got image banks like Getty um, who 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 do directly commercially benefit from locking other things out, right? <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, and uh, Getty will also report to sell you works that are from the public domain if you just uh, start trawling through their bank of image files, and you'll you can pull up a you know, uh, uh, gosh, it, it it's hard to express like the depth of <laughs> uh, of old of old etched. You want a 17th century uh, woodcut etching that Getty will give you a license to use. Um, for the very generous rate of you know, fifty-five dollars or whatever it is, it's, that's that's been in the public domain since the minute it was made, and <laughs> um, the 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 user has a lawful right to use it. Deeply, deeply frustrating. Yeah, and and it's it's basically it's it's on the way, right? Like we uh, we're at this point with the with the free trade agreement with the UK, where what well, that... and and we've doubled down. We've doubled down with the EU. So, and this is, I, I think I got sidetracked, but I mentioned we have a 15 year implementation window with the UK and that, that was told to uh, activists on this issue like me that it was, uh, that this was the best we were going to get. And that was the concession. 
Uh, and months later, literally months later, we signed an agreement with the EU that shortens that implementation window to four years. Wait, how do you do the review of the uh, legislation in that short amount of time? I, I, I do not believe that it can be done. So the last, we've been working on it for four years and it's gotten pretty much nowhere to the point where the review has uh, been put on the back burner, stalled out, and the next will essentially be starting from scratch. And so it can't be done. And th this is by design. So not only do they get copyright term extension, but they also ensure that we are not able to negotiate and uh, draft and pass the mitigation measures that we would expect to see in the law to compensate. And, and, and <laughs> importantly, it's worth noting that all of our major trading partners have copyright laws that are as, as bad as they are in some respects and as stupidly long as their terms are, do do more to compensate uh, for overly long copyright terms. And New Zealand law is not ready, uh, not remotely. So what, I, I don't, you know, we've, go, we've gone through like, okay, so here are the bad things about it. There, there are zero benefits, not even to the economies of the countries um, who are like ham-fistedly forcing this through and, and getting the New Zealand trade team to, to agree to it. Um, the New Zealand trade team isn't getting anything out of this. They've doubled down it. Um, they've, they've cut the time we have to prepare for it. And the only people benefiting are large corporates. Yeah, pretty much. How is that even sold? How is that even, like, not, you know, not even just sold to the public, but sold to the... Pol politically, copyright is one of these intensely difficult and nasty spaces and in part because and uh, there will be a class of people who are listening to me now who think i'm here to eviscerate the livelihoods of hard-working artists and creatives and and who genuinely believe that uh, that because you know the, the term is measured by the artist's life and authors are the ones in, uh, in, with whom copyright first vests and because of this that the law is necessary anything that extends copyright is necessarily good for authors, artists, creatives, anyone who, who produces anything made by copyright. And so it's unfortunately extremely easy to sell these kinds of extensions politically. Uh, and politicians and members of the public don't necessarily see it as a cost that they are paying, but rather a cultural subsidy. Of course, you know, I, I'm the last person in the world to complain about cultural subsidies. I think cultural subsidies are fantastic. But if you want to do them, do them in, in the smart, easy way of just subsidizing the creative people who are in your economy directly, not not by extending a copyright term that's not necessarily associated with the author or artist at all. And it's not even, I'm personally not persuaded that the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of today's famous authors and creatives need to be subsidized by their ancestors' royalty checks. But even if you believe that, Oftentimes they won't be. <laughs> they won't. The rights holders will not even be in the family. So it's one of these things that just falls, I think, flat on the face of the objectives that it purports to be fulfilling. Um, yet, nevertheless, it's so. And I, I, with having had great experience with this, it's painfully difficult to convince. Yeah, even to convince even artists themselves that this is not in their interest. So it's. Yeah, we're structurally doomed, and it's it's also largely irreversible. So this is we've we've lived now with three hundred and whatever three hundred uh, 
12 years of copyright. Uh, and in that time, copyright terms have not gone down. They go up. Copyright, like the scope of copyright extension hasn't ever shrunk. It gets wider. And, and there are structural reasons for this. It's, you have people who are all of a sudden dependent on these rights. You also have large, wealthy industrial bodies that have vast portfolios of them who are deeply invested in the status quo. It's passive income, right? Like, they're going to hold on to it. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the longer your copyright in, let's, you know, the, the Beatles catalog, for instance, in, in New Zealand, the sound recordings to the Beatles, later works are, you know, about to be done with. <laughs> and, 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 there, and it's not just because of where we are relative to the um, copyright term expiration. And that's, those are incredibly valuable rights to whoever owns them. And so if you are the body that owns those rights, you will always, uh, to the extent they're still making money, you'll always say, yes, I would like more income indefinitely, please. Always, yeah. always, always. Um, <laughs> uh, and there's a series of predictions that we'd start to see terms enlarging again as work started to enter the public domain in the United States for the first time after their 20 year gap from 1998 to 2018. And, you know, and now that, so that has now happened. Works now enter the public domain on January 1st in the United States, the way that they, they did not do for some time. And we haven't yet seen a big push for term extension again, but to be honest, if you just look at when the body of when the most commercially significant uh, copyrighted works in the 20th century were made, I don't think that it's necessarily that we won't see that term extension push. It's just that we're not going to see it yet. Because right now we're talking about things like there's a lot of talk about, you know, Mickey Mouse and uh, because the Steamboat Willie cartoon was going to fall into the public domain. But Steamboat Willie's not commercially significant to the Disney Corporation, not even remotely. And, and by falling into the public domain, it doesn't give the public vast rights in mickey mouse that's that's unfortunately you know that's that's not how the law well, it's not unfortunate or fortunate that's just it's not how the law works so um there are works from the mid-20th century that you could expect to be commercially significant for a much much longer time and part of this is just an artifact of how we make stuff um video is new to the 20th century sound recording well technically came about in the 19th century but it only got good um, with, with, after the advent of the microphone in what the thirties. And then after there, it was only, if, if you want to, if you listen to old sound recordings, it's not till the middle of the 20th century that you start getting to a, like a, a higher fidelity, um, product. And in the meantime, <laughs> um, we also have, and this is, uh, this is more just a fun piece of trivia, but you also have a culture industry that is committed to some extent in immolating the past to the extent that it is helpful in uh, ensuring the profitability of the future, or to the extent that the past ceases to be commercially significant. So uh, the, the legacy of silent cinema is almost entirely lost. So there was um, the United States National Film Preservation Board did a, a commission to study to look into how much of the silent cinema remains. And I, I'm gonna get the figures wrong by reciting them off the top of my head, but it's, I think north of 80%, I think it might even be north of 90% of all silent cinema ever made is gone. And, and it's not just gone because it rotted, although actually, you know, the, the film does literally rot. It was also destroyed by, by the copyright owners, by the studios who made the works to begin with. Yeah. And this isn't, this is not a, a solid, um, a lone example of sort of the willful uh, destruction of cultural heritage works by copyright owners. Um, it, it's, 
it's, it's economically rational for them. So why would they not do it? More stuff, more, more recently, I guess, um, and, and something which I have a, a little bit more knowledge of is in the video game industry. Um, and kind of, it's a much shorter time frame. But this is stuff that, like thousands and thousands of things that just don't exist anymore, uh, to the extent that you have people running around trying to gather these these cultural artifacts and digitize them. Um, and it's it's pretty incredible because in that copyright applies to code to to software in a way that you think isn't necessarily intuitive, but the way that we write software is we it's written with uh, it's text, <laughs> and text is fundamentally a copyrightable work. So the underlying code is protected, and it is what it's bizarre to think of the time frame of copyright, the life of the author plus. 70 or you know right plus 50 for now in new zealand but plus 70 in uh, unfortunately in the very near future uh relative to your ability to actually execute and run the code <laughs> so it's your software might become which the public might not have broad access to the source code to begin with, but your software might not become public domain uh <laughs> until well well after everything that was capable of parsing it or running it uh has been lost to the sands of time and there is I, there is admirable work that is done in software preservation, but it's hard and it's also legally fraught. And, yeah. <laughs> and, it, and the extent to which it's legally fraught is a question of law. New Zealand could, uh, in its laws, allow for effective software preservation that not only allows the organizations and individuals who want to preserve it to do so, um, but also to continue to do so in a way that it can actually run. But that needs to be written into the law. It's not there. So this is this is one of one of the many ways in which the, the Copyright Act is not fit for purpose. And these are these are known problems, but negotiating them is politically hell and it's a slog. And the for that reason, the government doesn't particularly want to touch it. Uh, and so they they don't have to touch it technically. All they have to do now is extend the term like they promised the UK and like they promised the EU. And whether there's the stomach to do the comprehensive review of the copyright acts that we know we need, <laughs> I, uh, I I was six months ago. I was optimistic. Today, I uh, I don't want to feel defeated. Uh, I'm uh, that I feel like I don't want to feel defeated. <laughs> I'm I doing my to... best not to feel <laughs> defeated. I want to get into like what what it looks like going. Well, what it looks like post uh, that agreement, but just before we we get into that, um, I just wanted to touch on um, something else, which is kind of I guess topical around the agreement, and that's stuff around the trips waiver um, for pharmaceuticals, particularly in regards to uh, COVID nineteen vaccine. Um, how how does so, that kind of thing interact with this? So, I, I, I'll important caveat is that I, I don't have, I don't think I have an awful lot to offer here. So, this is largely in a realm that's in patent law that's, um, I, I used to be much more connected with, and now I'm pretty much exclusively a copyright guy. But it, it is, it's intimately connected in the sense that the way that we, pharmaceutical patents and, uh, and the patent system is run is fundamentally the same as the way we run the copyright system, which is to say, that the laws that we pass are primarily written in the context or are, are well are written more in the context of trade negotiations by trade negotiators and by industrials ra rather than or by industry rather than by countries trying to enact sound policy so already new zealand's ability to write patent laws that 
reflect important needs like access to pharmaceuticals is already sharply constrained purposely, right? This is this is the point of the these trade agreements is to constrain flexibility around things like the production of patented pharmaceuticals or patented pharmaceuticals from overseas. And so uh, when you see sovereignty on these questions, yes, it, it limits your ability to create effective remedies. And in that way, it's it's exactly like, I think easier to see though, I think for a lot of people, when they see access to medicines being curtailed by a trade agreement, you know, that those are things that are reckoned in lives. And I, I don't, I think it's important to, well, that's inescapable, it's profound, and, and it's, it's heavy. When we're talking about the copyright economy, we're talking about things like the, the works that aren't made because people don't have access to the source material because it's protected by copyright. We're talking about the, the scientific journals that are locked up that prevent the creation of new knowledge or just academic work or historical work uh, <laughs> about what you're able to see in a museum or 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 on the internet or learn about read about with like a high resolution photograph on wikipedia right it's all it's both profoundly important because it's how we communicate knowledge it's how we understand the world it's how we interact with it creatively but it's also the way that we reckon its significance is much less stark how Sorry. much <laughs> how much do you think this is you know obviously this is really clear corporate desire to make more money um, and to tie up rights to continue to do that. But have you had do you have any sense um, just from your area of expertise that this is also about controlling knowledge? not not just about you know putting a yeah. um, financial cap on it and saying, no, no, you have to pay for it because because we want to make money out of it, but to just kind of gather everything up and say, you can't read this thing about how to do uh, how to fix your engine um or how to start a political party or etc cetera, etc cetera, ad infinitum yeah i think it's to, my my view of it is and, and maybe this is me being a, a starry-eyed optimist is that it's not the cost to the flow of knowledge strikes me as collateral collateral damage not not the intent i mean granted trust me if, if for a person who ha has a sensorious um, or sensorial intent the copyright system is a wonderful cudgel to wield uh, and it can be profoundly powerful um, in silencing the spread of information that people that you would not want to see spread and people do use copyright that way but for these in the context of these trade negotiations that are being done at the behest of industrial parties they just don't care or they don't see it in those terms or or maybe maybe arguably worse they view the system that they're promoting as the best way of sharing knowledge broadly that in fact paying them for access to it is going to be a superior way of delivering knowledge and culture to the world than letting copyrights expire or allowing other forms of public access and so you do that and so core conceit right that uh mm -hmm. if something doesn't have commercial value it doesn't have value at all so we have to ensure things have commercial value to ensure that knowledge continues to exist is that like is yeah. that really what they believe that's that's exactly it yes and and it is and we're talking about <laughs> the, the the concentration of publishing is also just as true or or more true in scientific and academic publishing and, and in fact if you look at a chart of the most profitable publishing operations in the world it's not random house and uh and hachette as as big and powerful as they are 
it's uh, it's Elsevier and I, I don't want to wrongly say which ones are the most profitable, but there's it textbook publishing, academic publishing, uh, and and scientific publishing are in fact they are the largest, most profitable, most powerful publishing interests in the world, and <laughs> uh, and they for anyone who's ever tried to purchase access to a scientific journal, much less negotiate access licenses on behalf of the university, you know it doesn't come cheap. It is profoundly expensive, and the irony is those are works that the people who write them write them for free. Uh, they, they they so if you're if you are uh, publishing an artif- article, and no matter how prestigious the scientific journal, you don't get paid for it. You do it because you're well. You might do it for careerist reasons or uh, for whatever reason in the world. But regardless, the your incentive is to just publish it so that people read it, so people know what you had to say and can learn from it. Um, but the incentive of the commercial publisher that owns the rights is to extract as much wealth from that as possible. And they do. So in academic publishing, the profit margins are um, for the big giants are 35 to 45%. They're some of the steepest and highest profit margins in the world, as they would be when your inputs are literally free. Uh, <laughs> and, and this is the system that we are propping up and enlarging. And that they, And they will say to you, they will promise you, that this is the best way to ensure that knowledge is spread, preserved, and cherished. And in my view, <laughs> uh, that I I don't even have an ounce of respect for that position. It, uh, it strikes me. I I, I don't want to say it's a lie because I've met the. I know these people. I don't think that they that they think they're telling an untruth. They they believe what they're selling. I think that is worse. Um, I think that is worse. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do too. <laughs> it's, it's a shocker. <laughs> so what does this look like? Um, when, when does this ratify, I guess? Um, is it just at well, the so, end of that four years or are there immediate effects that it's going to have for New Zealand businesses and creatives? Sorry, I, uh, so the, the question is, what's the, ne- the next step for the, um, for the term extension process? So we have both trade agreements have been signed, um, but neither has been ratified. Um, it's so I could be wrong and I don't want to misspeak. I, I believe that the, the clock starts ticking from the date of signature, but it could be from the date of ratification. Actually, I, I think it's the other. I think it's once the treaty has been ratified by both countries, then the clock starts ticking. So we that hasn't happened yet. So the four-year clock, I believe, has not started counting down, but it presumably will shortly. And we've... Uh, <laughs> At this point, I don't have much reason to believe that we'll see movement on either trade agreement. They're viewed by, especially the UK one. I, I think there's more discontent around uh, among industry on the terms of the EU deal. Uh, but the industrial consensus on the UK agreement is, oh, this is this is great for us. Uh, and whatever price the public pays in in the intellectual property section, you know, we don't give a fig. And that's. Um, <laughs> I, I don't want to talk about inevitabilities. I'm, uh, for my part, I'm going to be raising as much of a fuss as I can muster. Uh, I know, and so will my my organization, Toto, and uh, and I hope that there will be others. And it's to some extent like um, naive belief in politics is a or the ability of politics to correct mistakes and injustices is, is the fuel that keeps me running. So, and I I. I hope it is for others so <laughs> there there's no reason that it's it feels like nothing but 
writing your MP, uh, making phone calls. I, I, I think it, I think it matters. And I think there's all sorts of other reasons independent, completely independent of this to have problems with the FTAs. Um, this is, I think for most people, this is probably not a primary issue in the way that it is, is for me, but I think, <laughs> I think it's of much more profound significance for people's everyday lives than, than they tend to realize in a way that a lot of the other industrial policy might be fly more under the radar. This will affect you. This will affect your cultural life. It will affect what knowledge you can access. And it, it can't help but do that, even if you never never really know that that's how it happened. I think that's probably one of the um, strengths, the right word, um, of, of the kind of policies is that they are invisible, right? Like, because one, that stuff kind of happens slowly as, you know, things suddenly you're still you're still getting to watch things you're still getting to see things we have platforms for that but it's all kind of happening in the background it's happening outside of um your regular interactions in a way that you know just having a tax slapped on something doesn't and one of the things that we're trying to do and, and we'll be doing over the next well hopefully indefinitely is to start celebrating what we like you know in in sort of in the business what we call public domain day which is it, it's New Year's Day, it's January 1st, because that, that's the day when copyright terms expire. And so in, in theory, that's the day where the public receives a gift from earlier generations every year, like clockwork. And it's one of those things where because what we're losing, the, the, what makes this invisible is that we're losing gifts that we won't receive. Um, and we've done, I think, too poor of a job of recognizing that there's this kind of special thing that happens every year uh, that's pretty amazing. And by taking it for granted, we're likely to lose it. So it's, it, it's probably, it's too late <laughs> in some ways, probably to start celebrating public domain day while we still have it, but we're certainly going to be encouraging others to do so. Uh, and then once, if, and when copyright terms are extended in some ways, public domain day becomes a vigil. It's a, you look at what would have been entering the public domain and what could have been and hold, trying to remember that, it, you know, if all goes well, it should happen again, hopefully in 20 years. Although, my God, it's, it's a long time. Yeah, it is. So is there anything coming up um, in 2023 of particular note that you've got off the top of your head that enters the public domain? Oh, you know, I, it's, it's too bad because I have not done my homework on the 2023 <laughs> um, public domain day. But I've... It's, but we will have a um, be publishing a, like a list of stuff, uh, and ideally, actually doing some of the hard digitization work to make it actually available. Um, uh -huh. One of the sadnesses of the public domain, or public domain day, especially for works of New Zealand significance, is that even there isn't some third-party library overseas that is scanning them and making them available on the internet. One, they can't do so awfully, and and two, be for works that have New Zealand significance, they're probably not uh, as available or as significant overseas. So it's really on New Zealand to, to build its own digitally accessible public domain. Uh, and it's one of the things I would <laughs> um, would like to see more of. And, and, and I know that Toto is working to encourage. I think we're, we're just about getting uh, towards time, but were there any uh, final things that you wanted to um, shout out for or you, that you hope to see? over the next couple of years as, as these things move along? Well, so what I would hope to see is an actual serious and aggressive 
revisiting of the terms of the Copyright Act on the whole. I think that this, to the structure of these two deals to me, strikes me as a very calculated and cynical approach designed to ensure that we don't have the time, the resources, the energy, or the effort um, to put in the mitigation measures that would make this less painful. And so from here, it becomes a bit of a sprint to, to make it happen and to have the political will to make it happen. So what I'm hoping for is that we actually get back to the hard work of doing a comprehensive review of the Copyright Act, um, pull that out, you know, dust off that review uh, and start making some progress because we're not going to have a lot of time. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, it's been really good to kind of go through that with that level of expertise and attention to detail uh, because I... Just like so many of these issues, we don't often get the opportunity to have these conversations in a setting like this, really, this kind of like long form, nuanced attempt to to inform people about it. It was uh, a real treat. So thank you for having me on. Anytime. Hey, if you've enjoyed this, uh, share it around. I think it's really important uh, that we're making sure when we have these uh, midweek casts in particular that have a bit more of a... Uh, that last a bit longer or a bit more relevant for longer than our current events episodes, uh, that we try and get them to as many people as possible. Um, help to educate people, uh, help to get people activated, help to get people engaged with uh, the multitude of issues that uh, are swirling around us at all times. As, yeah, we head to a, a number <laughs> a number of different crises, honestly. Uh, get involved, um, get engaged, uh, get active. Where can people find you um, or find Toto? Uh, I think uh, first and foremost uh, online. <laughs> I think we're Toto dot um, uh, dot NZ should redirect. We had a redirect issue, but I think and uh, on Twitter as well. I think it would be two two platforms where we're most uh, active and available. All right, and I'll pop those into the um, episode summary so that you can find those there as well if you want to go and have a look at what Toto is up to. Um, I'll put my Patreon link in there as well if you want to donate to 1 of 200 to keep bringing you uh, this kind of independent media uh, and conversation. Uh, we'd really appreciate it uh, and it's what helps us continue to run. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams is the lie Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams, is a lie aspirational. Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism. You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism